I apologize in advance uh, if I have some trouble with my speech today. I have a bit of congestion going on. Um, to my knowledge, it's not the coronavirus. I have been keeping my distance from Wayne. Uh, yeah, you too. Good. Okay, because I had lunch with Matthew on Wednesday, and I, he could have passed it to me. So uh, I don't think that's what's going on, though. But if you would please open your Bibles to First uh, Corinthians chapter three, and uh, let's begin by reading this passage together. Uh, we're going to read the entire chapter, and we're going to be looking at this chapter over the next two or three weeks. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not yet ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. No one can lay a foundation other than what that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Paulus, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you're Christ's, and Christ is God's. <clears throat> Every now and then, an event takes place that completely blindsides us. Something happens that we simply didn't think possible, that takes us by surprise. For me, one of those events occurred this past Sunday. It was uh, shortly after our home fellowship group. I was sitting down for a moment to sort of unwind, and as I opened up my phone to check the news, I was immediately hit with the headline, Kobe Bryant dead in helicopter crash in California. I was uh, completely stunned. I immediately wanted to go to website after website to make sure that it was true, that this was what I read was accurate, that it wasn't some sort of hoax. 
And if I'm being completely honest, I, I kept searching partly in hopes of finding some reason to think it wasn't true. That this was some kind of mistake, that even if Kobe had been in the wreckage, that he would emerge safely after all. If you've ever experienced the death of someone close to you, you know how that works. The shock of the event is first met with denial. Your first response is to hold out hope that it isn't true. And only after you can't escape the reality that someone you cared about is gone, do you finally accept the fact that you'll never see them again. I know that probably sounds pretty silly to a lot of you to think that I responded this way to the death of Kobe Bryant. I mean, people die all the time. And it wasn't like I actually knew Kobe Bryant. I'm not even a Laker fan. And I'd more or less stopped watching basketball around the time he entered his prime. He wasn't a star that I grew up idolizing. But you have to understand, I was living in Los Angeles when Kobe Bryant's Lakers were on their fifth and sixth title runs. One of my more vivid memories of Los Angeles was watching the Lakers fall short in six games to the Celtics with my fellow seminary students in a cramped apartment in the summer of 2008. The Lakers are easily the most popular sports team in Los Angeles. And Kobe Bryant is regarded to be perhaps the greatest Laker of all time. This meant that the middle school students I taught, the middle school students I coached, idolized Kobe Bryant. He wasn't just a basketball player to them. He was their hero, their idol. He was who they wanted to be, not Michael Jordan, not LeBron James, Kobe Bryant. I can still remember how they'd yell out, Kobe, every time they'd wad up a piece of paper and try to toss it in one of the trash cans in my classroom. All to say, if you lived in Los Angeles at that time, you didn't have to know Kobe Bryant or even to be a basketball fan to feel like he was a part of your life. To that city, Kobe Bryant transcended basketball. He was more than just a shooting guard for the Lakers. He was a part of the culture, a part of that era, a part of your way of life. And so when you hear that Kobe Bryant is dead, you feel like part of you died too. Some aspect of your childhood, perhaps something familiar, or in my case, part of that time in seminary, part of that very special relationship with those students, that died too. So as you can imagine, I've been watching this news sort of closely this week. It would seem that his death and at such a young age has gripped a lot of people. And as I've watched, I've tried to listen to why so many others feel this sense of loss. I've tried to listen for what this cultural icon stood for. What was his legacy? And I tell you, I don't think that very many people can articulate it. I don't know that they can express why they feel this sense of loss. But what I think is absolutely fascinating is that when they all try to describe his legacy, there's one word that keeps coming up, and that's competitiveness. This is partly why I was listening so closely. Because if you know anything about Kobe Bryant, then you know that what really defined him, the thing that he really wanted to be his legacy, was his fire to win. 
Again, it wasn't just who he was. It was an image that he very carefully cultivated. He wanted you to know, to think that he was cutthroat, that he would do anything it takes to win. I find that very fascinating because in a sense, Kobe, Kobe was the very embodiment of self-interest. Again, that's part of his legacy. He wanted the ball in his hands every single time. And he wanted to demonstrate to every player on the court that he was better than them. And so now he's gone. And I'm thinking to myself, how do you miss a guy like that? Why would you miss someone whose image, whose legacy was self-interest? And as people struggle for the words, the thing that they say he stood for, the thing that they say they'll miss was his competitiveness. I find that absolutely fascinating because over the past several weeks we've been talking about this wisdom that's found in Christ. This wisdom which Paul tells us is neither of this age nor the rulers of this age. And we're getting to see an example of this live in real time through the remembrance of Kobe Bryant. Here is this cultural icon, a man that defined basketball for a generation of young people. And what did he stand for? What does the world praise him for? What do they find admirable about him? It was his competitiveness. His willingness to do anything he could to beat his opponent and come out on top. Now, of course, I think there's a lot to unpack there. If you were in Sunday school back here back in the fall, you may remember a quote I shared with you uh, from an author by the name of Samuel Johnson. It was written many, many years ago. And in it, Dr. Johnson explains that he doesn't care for literature that exactly mimics real life. And that's because he thinks it's confusing to the reader. It makes it hard for them to separate vice from virtue. He even says that there are these people throughout history that have these tremendous abilities, but also tremendous sin. And he says they've been the, create, the great corruptors of the age because people can't separate the sin from the talent. And I think we have a little bit of that with Kobe Bryant. As I was talking with my kids about this this week, I was explaining to them that there's some virtue in Kobe's competitiveness. He was known as a gym rat, gym rat for instance. He worked hard at being the best. Hard work, perseverance, those are attributes that are worthy of admiration. However, it's hard to separate that hard, what motivated that hard work, which was essentially pride. I think when people praise Kobe for his competitiveness, what's drawing them in is the virtue. It's the hard work and the perseverance. They find that inspiring. They want to learn to fight and to keep fighting and Keep going after their goal, just like Kobe did night after night. They want to learn how to push through and never give up. Still, I don't think we can discount the fact that one of the things that people admire in men like him is their sheer competitiveness. It's their will to overcome and be the best and achieve greatness. It would seem that this is a characteristic that's been passed down in our race since the fall. I alluded to this just a couple of weeks ago. You see it occur probably in Genesis 6 right after the flood, most definitely in Genesis 1 at Babel. God created Adam to rule the earth on his behalf for his glory 
And when Adam sinned, he rejected that role, choosing instead to contend with God and to try to achieve a status equal with him. It would appear that ever since that day, man has been on a quest for his own glory, on a quest to celebrate his own greatness. And when a man like Kobe achieves some measure of that greatness, of that glory, the rest of mankind admires him for it. They applaud him for it, wishing they could be like him and achieve some measure of their own greatness. I know that's what my students admired. It was less the hard work and the perseverance, still less the sheer achievement of excellence. No, it was the applause they admired. They wanted to be famous like Kobe and cheered like Kobe. They wanted others shouting their name and wishing they could be like them. Friends, these are worldly values. Such things are the wisdom of this age. And unfortunately, these values sometimes find their way into the church. And I'm not just talking about a general kind of competitiveness. Again, we all live in a society that seems obsessed with the idea of showing off of, of proving to your friends and your family that your life is as good as, if not better, than theirs. You see it all over social media. Really, there has probably never been an age where people have had such a tremendous opportunity or felt such tremendous pressure to project their successes into the world for everyone to see and admire. So, of course, it's going to be very common for Christians to get swept up in that kind of competitiveness. Uh, again, not only are they saved out of that culture, but they even continue to live in it. So, of course, Christians are going to wrestle with that kind of competitiveness. It's only natural. But I'm not talking about that. No, I mean, sometimes these kinds of attitudes find their way into the corporate life of the church. A pastor envies the successes of another pastor. He sees another congregation growing and the notoriety of that pastor rising, and he wonders to himself, why isn't anyone paying attention to me? Why can't my ministry be like that? A young woman sees a, a peer pulled under the wing of a more mature saint in the church, a saint who she's long wished would disciple her. And she wonders to herself, what does she see in her that she doesn't see in me? How come she decided to spend time with her instead of me? Or flip it around. An older man sees a younger Christian seeking another man out for counsel. And he thinks to himself, now wait a minute, why didn't he come to me for help? How come he didn't ask me that question? Someone gets praised for their service in the church. And some poor saint who's been silently toiling in the background starts to wonder, how come no one has ever thanked me? How come I never get recognized for what I do? There are many forms it can take, but in whatever form it takes, the common denominator is jealousy. It's pride, this desire for self-glory, for praise. And that's more or less what's happening here in 1 Corinthians. In fact, it's one of the central issues of this letter. 
I know I've recently been talking quite a bit about Paul's defense of his ministry early on in this letter. However, I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that that defense really emerges out of the factionalism that has erupted in Corinth, a factionalism which Paul began to address back in verse 10 of chapter 1. After a very brief thanksgiving, Paul opens up this letter by saying, chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He starts by saying, I want you to be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then he explains why he starts with this appeal. Verses 11 and 12, he says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And then from there, he gets into this defense of his ministry. It would seem that this was one of the reasons for this factionalism. Paul didn't minister with the sort of intellectual sophistication or eloquence as a guy like Apollos. And this is leading at least some to conclude that Paul's teaching is inferior. And then out of this gap that exists between Paul's teaching what it is and what they think it could be, some are even beginning to emerge who think that they're better than Paul, that they've surpassed his understanding. So you see this defense was really rooted in this notion of factionalism. Or I think even better stated rivalry, since it doesn't seem as if the church has fractured necessarily. They're just competing with each other. They're all trying to demonstrate how great and superior they are in comparison with one another. This is a theme that's going to continue to develop more and more the further we get into this book. This really is one of these central issues in this letter. And in this passage we read just a moment ago, Paul reminds the Corinthians that this kind of attitude, this competitiveness, this jealousy is not Christian. It doesn't belong in the church. It's part of the fallen wisdom that they're supposed to repent of. In chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, Paul comes off this explanation where he explains that part of the reason why his message was unsophisticated was because God planned it that way. By saying, verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Again, the Corinthians think that Paul lacked substance in his teaching. He responds to this accusation by saying, first, that God is actually intending to save through a message that appears foolish to the world. And then second, that there is a kind of sophistication that Paul can offer among the mature. The only problem is that this world still isn't going to reject this wisdom either. Reason being, he goes on to explain, this is a kind of wisdom that's discerned through the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual kind of wisdom. Now, here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, he explains why he couldn't impart this kind of wisdom to the Corinthians. Saying, verses 1 through 4, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I, pa I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Translation, the problem was that although the Corinthians possessed the Spirit of God, they were not thinking or acting like spiritual people. 
They were thinking rather like the natural man, like a person without the Spirit of God. This means that so long as they're thinking like this, they're going to be unable to receive the wisdom that Paul has to impart. So this is part of the reason why Paul's teaching seems so foolish. They think it foolish because Paul couldn't give them the full scope of what he had to offer since they're still thinking and acting like the natural man, like the one without the Holy Spirit. And what's the evidence of this? Verse 3, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Verse 4, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Paul is saying he couldn't impart the full spectrum of his instruction because their thinking was still too much like the world. And the evidence of this is their jealousy, their rivalry, their strife, their competitiveness. So what's so unchristian about competitiveness? How is competition in the church evidence to the fact that a body of believers is thinking in a merely human way? Paul gives us four reasons here in this chapter. Of course, we're not immune to this behavior. We can find ourselves becoming jealous of our brothers and sisters in Christ and fall into competition with them. So you can think of this as four reasons why we as a body need to be on guard against this type of thinking and repent of any competitive behavior that might arise in us from time to time. This morning, we're going to look at the first of these four reasons together. And the first reason is this. Number one, because a competitive spirit forgets who builds the church. A competitive attitude is earthly, it is unspiritual, it conforms to the wisdom of this age in that it forgets who builds the church. We see this in verses 5 through 9. Paul follows up this statement about such divisions being a reflection of the fact that Corinthians are behaving in a merely human way by saying this, What then? is Apollos. What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. I don't know if you've observed this uh, yet in our message, but we're actually talking about two different attitudes in this passage. Uh, you, might, you see these two attitudes, or you might even call it uh, an attitude and an action, uh, come, back, uh, come up in, back in verse 3. Uh, there Paul says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way. Those are the two attitudes, or the attitude and the action. Jealousy and strife. The word for jealousy is zealos in the Greek, and it's sometimes translated as zeal. So it can be both positive and negative. In some contexts, it refers to a person's passion for righteousness, or their passions for someone, someone's affections, uh, say a spouse. In other contexts, it refers to a person's passion for the possession of another, something, else, something that someone else owns. It's a kind of covetousness. 
But either way, it contains both this idea of passion and possession. It's a burning, a yearning for something in someone else's possession. That can be a healthy burning, such as when God is jealous for the affection of his people, or when he's jealous for his glory, or it can be an unhealthy burning, such as when a person is jealous of someone else's success. Here, Paul is clearly referring to the unhealthy type. The Corinthians are jealous of something that their fellow church members possess. And Paul is saying that this jealousy is demonstrative of their unspiritual thinking. The second word uh, here is eris, not eros, if you're familiar with that term, but eris. And it means something like strife or discord. And what's interesting about this word is that of the nine different times Paul uses it in the New Testament, he associates it with jealousy on all but two occasions. And one of those other two occasions is actually right here in 1 Corinthians, back in chapter 1, verse 11, when he says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. The word for quarreling there is this same word, eris. So in context, Paul obviously still connects this idea of jealousy there, even if it's within the broader context. He still seems to have that in mind here. And the connection seems fairly obvious, right? That between zealos and eris. The zealos, the desire to possess what someone else has, inevitably leads to eris. Strife. Discord. To quote James 4, 1 through 2, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's the same sequence of events that I see transpire on an almost daily basis with my kids. One child has something the other one wants, and so they try to yank it out of their hands. The other one, of course, tries to hold on to it, and so a fight ensues in short order. That's the sort of picture that we have here. There's this kind of wrestling match taking place in Corinth. This competition. The Corinthians are striving with one another. And it's a contest that's born out of their jealousy of each other. Of course, there are all kinds of things that we can be envious for. We can be jealous of someone else's career. We can be jealous of their perfect family even their physical appearance or their intelligence, all of these kinds of jealousy can lead to their own kind of quarreling. But what's the thing that the Corinthians envy here? It would seem it would be the praise of men. There's all this talk about being regarded as foolish by the world. Uh, chapter 8, later on, Paul's going to talk about being puffed up with knowledge. Uh, the same thing seems to be happening with the use of spiritual gifts. In chapter 12, the Corinthians apparently regard some gifts as superior to others, and they're using this to despise those with lesser gifts. Of course, this is even the basic attitude of the city of Corinth at large. It was obsessed with the idea of status and social achievement. So this is what the Corinthians are competing over. They're making distinctions among themselves. One saying, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. And they're doing all this in order to say to each other, I'm better than you. I know more than you. In context, even I'm more spiritual than you. I have a greater portion of the Spirit. 
So almost they're, they're almost saying, I'm a higher level of being than you. I have a greater spiritual power at work in me. And they're doing all this in order to lord their position over others. They're in a kind of race to demonstrate who is spiritually superior to the rest. Again, the irony here is that they're actually incredibly immature. Here they are in this competition to demonstrate who the greatest among them is. And Paul says, actually, you're all a bunch of babies. What are you talking about greatest? You're so far behind, I haven't been able to wean you off the milk yet. They're nowhere even close to being in a position of boasting. They're nowhere even close to being spiritually advanced. And what's demonstrating this is this competitiveness. Again, how does Paul know this? How does he know that this indicates their spiritual immaturity? Well, because such competitiveness indicates at best their forgetfulness and at worst their ignorance of just exactly who it is that builds the church. There are two contributors to the kind of competitiveness that's in view here. Or you could say there are two ends to this kind of competitiveness. I don't want you to miss this because I think it's very easy to hear about this idea of spiritual competition and think to yourself, you know, that's not something really I wrestle with. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a teacher in the church. I don't really see myself as trying to compete with anyone else for some type of spiritual praise from my brothers and sisters in Christ. So this doesn't apply to me. And I want you to understand this isn't true. This does apply to you. Even if you don't see yourself as being in some kind of direct competition with someone else in the church for spiritual recognition, I'd wager that there's a good chance that you still contribute to this mess and probably even far more than you realize. <clears throat> Again, there are two ends to this kind of competitiveness. There's the receiving end, the recipient of the praise, and then there's the giving end, the giver of the praise. <clears throat> or if I could put it this way, there's the Kobe Bryant, and then there's everyone else in the stands cheering his name. Now you may think that the problem is with the guy on the receiving end of this arrangement, the guy on the floor playing basketball. It's the guy being praised. But did you know that actually when it comes to this competition in the church, the major contributor to this strife is quite often the giver of the praise. After all, not only is that praise the fuel that feeds the ambitions of the spiritually competitive, but quite often the reality is that the competition that's taking place isn't even taking place between the leaders themselves, but among their followers. I mean, if you want to see how this works, just flip on the television tonight, right? Later tonight, of course, the Chiefs and the 49ers are going to square off against each other in the Super Bowl. It's a very big event here in Missouri. It's the first time the Chiefs have been to the Super Bowl in over 50 years. Now, you don't quite get the experience during the Super Bowl that you might get during a Chiefs home game. But even during the Super Bowl, you'll see fans decked out in Chiefs gear cheering on their team. And likewise, you'll see fans decked out in 49ers gear cheering on their team. And why? Why? Do they get anything 
If their respective team wins, are they playing in the game? Do they get a bonus, you know, a roster bonus or whatever if they win the game? Do they get to lift the Lombardi trophy if the Chiefs win? Or will the 49ers send their fans a championship ring in the mail? No. So why is everyone cheering? It's because they get to feel a sense of pride if their team wins. Even if they're not on the team, it's as if they were. You even hear it in the way that they talk about the game, right? They'll say, I can't believe we lost. Or, we did it. We're Super Bowl champions. Listen, that's what's going on here at Corinth. There are these rivalries taking place in the church, but this isn't a rivalry that either Paul or Apollos has encouraged. In fact, towards the end of this letter, we discover that Paul, or sorry, that Apollos was actually present with Paul when he wrote this letter. And despite these factions that are pitting him against Paul, Paul has actually urged Apollos to return to Corinth, and Apollos refused. <laughs> Guys, these men aren't in competition with each other. Not in the slightest. This is a competition, rather, that has been fostered entirely by the church. It's a competition entirely of their own creation. They're breaking into camps and saying, I like Apollos better. Well, yeah, well, I like Paul better. So, Apollos is a better speaker than Paul. Yeah, but Paul has more spiritual power. And they're using these distinctions as a way of competing with each other. You see this exact same thing take place in the church today. I don't know to what degree this happens in a competitive sense necessarily. But people, I tell you, people most definitely pick favorites among their teachers. And then they rally around that individual as if somehow that teacher is better than another. And I want you to be clear here. I'm not saying that all teachers are equal, so don't think I'm targeting you right away if you happen to have a favorite teacher. Uh, we can get into giftedness later on in this book, but yes, while two teachers may have the gift of teaching, one may have that gift in a greater abundance than another. Further, some teachers do a better job of sticking to the text than others, and if you tend to gravitate to one teacher over another because of their biblical fidelity, I certainly don't think that violates Paul's intent here. But let me give you a very concrete and I think a very easy to understand example. Back when I was in seminary, Emily and I attended Grace Community Church. Grace Community Church, of course, is John MacArthur's church. John MacArthur is a pretty famous preacher. He's got his own radio program, Grace to You. He's the author of over 100 books. The man is most definitely a gifted teacher. And he's a biblically faithful one. Well, back when we were at Grace, every now and then, John would be out of the pulpit for a period of time. Maybe it was a week. Usually towards the end of the summer, it was several weeks. He'd have like a month off to recuperate. And do you know what would happen at Grace Church whenever this happened? Attendance would plummet. And I mean noticeably plummet. It was obvious that there was a certain portion of that congregation that was only showing up to hear John. And when John was out, they were out. Think about that for a minute, guys. Don't get me wrong. It's okay to like John MacArthur. I like John MacArthur. He may even be your favorite teacher. That's fine. He can be your favorite. The man's a gifted preacher. But think about it. It's not like if John isn't in the pulpit, 
then the next guy up at Grace Church isn't going to be biblical or something like that. And it's not like in a church that size with that many men being trained for ministry that he's just not going to have something to offer you. They're going to have to leave Sunday, you know, you're not going to leave spiritually enriched by what he's had to say. No. All right, that's not what's going to happen. But that's how at least a portion of this congregation was acting. If John's not going to be in the pulpit, then what's the point of showing up? They're acting as if John MacArthur alone could benefit their spiritual life. And friends, let me ask you, what do you think is going to happen in the heart of the man who steps up into the pulpit that Sunday and sees those empty pews? What do you think is happening in the hearts of all these seminary students there attending that church when they start to see that a certain portion of a supposedly very biblical, very solid, mature church isn't going to show up if they can't learn to preach like John MacArthur? If they aren't as gifted as John MacArthur, do you think that maybe, just maybe, they might be tempted to start to practice the very kinds of things that Paul is warning the Corinthians about here? Do you think that maybe they might start to think that they need to adopt some of the eloquence and style of a guy like John MacArthur or a guy like an Apollos in order to hold their audience? Do you see how this works? Do you see how the giver of the praise contributes to this kind of competitiveness in the church? It's not just the recipient that's the problem. It's the giver as well. Do you know what these individuals forget? And this can be on either end. It can be the one who's trying to earn the esteem of men through their ministry, or it can be the one giving it. Do you know what they forget? They forget that man doesn't build the church. God does, right? Jesus doesn't tell Peter, on this rock you will build my church, or Paul, or Paulus, or John MacArthur, or Ryan Jokey. No, he said, on this rock, I will build my church. God is the one who builds the church, and this leaves absolutely no room for competition in the body of Christ. Of course, Paul has already laid this theological uh, the theological foundation for this point uh, earlier on. Uh, since chapter 1, verse 18, he's been explaining that the church isn't built on man's rhetoric. The gospel doesn't advance through oratorical skill. Quite the opposite. Paul points out that there's a sense in which such skill could actually hinder the advancement of the gospel. Personally, he was very careful to avoid such eloquence, such rhetorical flourishes. He actually didn't want people drawn to his ability as a speaker. And he explains that's because God intends to save through power, not wisdom. Again, the Corinthians think his style of teaching simple and unsophisticated, but Paul understood it didn't matter how sophisticated his argument or his communication was. He couldn't produce a single convert with it. The only way a person would believe, rather, was by the power of God. It was through the Spirit of God. So if Paul leaned on his powers as a speaker, there could only be one result, and that would be false converts. All his rhetorical skill could do was attract people to come and hear him. That's the most it could do. It was completely unable to produce spiritual change. So if he leaned on that, the most likely result would be a big church with a lot of false converts. 
And this is why Paul preached the way he did. It was because he understood that human skill and understanding is completely unable to conjure up spiritual life. It cannot achieve the new birth. Well, if man can't produce change through their skill, if men are saved rather by the power of God, then this can lead to only one conclusion, and that's the fact that God gets all the glory and salvation. Meaning the whole concept of spiritual competition is completely ridiculous since there's nothing that any man can boast in, right? God is doing all the work. It's like what Paul says back in chapter 1, verse 13. God has done it this way so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is a point that Paul now reiterates here. To the one who thinks there's something to boast about in Apollos over Paul, or vice versa, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Clearly, there's nothing to boast in. Neither Paul nor Apollos, neither the one who boasts in Paul nor the one who boasts in Apollos can boast in who they are or what they know or what they do since God alone causes the growth. Essentially, none of them are better than the rest. None of them can say that one ministry is better than another since there's only one person standing behind it all, and that's God. So again, Paul has already sort of made this point back in chapters 1 and 2, or at least he's laid the theological foundation for it. However, what I'd have you note now is that Paul adds some nuance to this argument here. You see, it's not as if that by this Paul is saying that he and Apollos are simply doing the same thing. Rather, he observes that they each had a different role to play. He says, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Just so you know, this is an apparent reference to the fact that after Paul established the church in Corinth, Apollos then came in after and performing a different function, used his oratorical skills to strengthen the church by defending the gospel against its Jewish opponents. Basically, he practiced a kind of apologetics. Uh, by the way, reason, logic, skill, all, uh, oratorical skill, very useful in that sense, in terms of defending the faith, strengthening believers in that sense. That's what he did. The Corinthians were helped greatly by Apollos, and they're thinking that this is because Apollos is smarter than Paul. And Paul here corrects this idea. He says, actually, part of the issue is that we are performing different roles. Paul was planting. Apollos was watering. This is actually another reason why Paul's and Apollos' ministry looked so different. Again, if we had time, I could explain. This is another reason why Paul's preaching seemed simple compared to Apollos. They were performing different roles. Paul was planting a church and Apollos was watering it. Those two activities require two different types of instruction. And right here, Paul is noting this. He's observing that he and Apollos simply had different roles to play. One was planting, the other was watering. This is partly why their ministries look so different. Then Paul concludes, verses 7 through 9. So, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. In other words, Paul and Apollos are on the same team. 
Their ministries might look different, but it wasn't because they were in competition with each other. Rather, it was because they were performing different roles in the same process. I mean, you think about it, right? And just by appearances, it could look like a farmer planting grain and a farmer harvesting grain are working against each other. You know, the one is uh, putting seed into the ground. The other's taking grain out of it. Their actions look very different. However, as different as those actions may seem, they're still a part of the same process. The farmer who plants and the one who harvests are actually working towards a common goal. And I think, I think about when I was back coaching basketball, there would be moments when one of my players would go in for a drive and the ball would pop out, or someone would heave up a shot and then cling off the rim, and as it was coming down or as it was rolling across the floor, two of my players would both jump for it, and not realizing who was next to them, they'd start wrestling over the ball. And when that happened, either myself or someone in the stands would usually shout out, right? You've probably been to a game, heard this before, they'll shout, same team, same team, same team, right? Guys, that's what Paul's doing here. He sees the Corinthians competing with each other, wrestling over which is the greatest, and he's yelling out, same team, same team. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Do you know what this is like? For there to be competition in the church. Again, I'm not just talking about the leaders, the players on the field, so to speak. I'm talking about the people in the stands cheering them on. Do you know what this is like to root for the success of one Christian leader or one ministry over another? It would be like showing up tonight to watch the Super Bowl and cheering every time Patrick Mahomes throws the ball and then booing every time Tyreek Hill catches it. Right? That'd be completely ridiculous. If you don't know football, they're on the same team, by the way. They're both on the Chiefs, right? Tyreek Hill and Patrick Holmes, you know, they might look different on the field. They may do different things, but they're still wearing the same uniform. They're still working towards the common goal of winning a football game. Friends, so it is with the various leaders within the church. They may not all be alike, but they're still a part of the same team. And ideally, they're all working towards the same goal. They're all seeking to glorify Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. So there really shouldn't be any competition in the body of Christ. Because number one, literally no one's ministry is quote-unquote best. Since everyone is actually completely powerless to produce any spiritual fruit on their own. And number two, since we're all on the same team. We may have different roles to play, but we're all on the same team. Don't forget this point, friends. The enemy is out there, not in here. The enemy is Satan. It's the world system that he rules over, which is trying to blind the minds of the unbelieving. It's not in here. It's not in the body of Christ. No, we need to be working together for the advancement of the gospel. And with that in mind, I want to close here this morning with four brief exhortations. First, if you're trying to earn praise through your service, can I just encourage you to remember that, number one, you need to please Christ, not man. And number two, that He rewards you according to your faithfulness, not the results. It's easy to misunderstand what I'm saying here and to think that because I'm saying don't compete, that I'm saying don't run to win. 
That's actually not what I'm saying. The Bible does encourage us to run hard for the sake of Christ, and it even encourages us to run hard with the promise of a reward. You see Paul himself explaining this as part of the mo what, what motivated him in ministry, and in a couple of occasions, he even describes it in athletic terms. He's the, the fighter disciplining his body for maximum performance. He's the runner straining towards the finish line and all in hopes of winning the prize. Of course, the main part of that prize is eternal life, which everyone who believes in Christ receives. And yet, I have to tell you, on several occasions, Paul hints that he expects there to be a difference in the rewards that are distributed in heaven as well. Even right here in context, we'll talk about this next week, but you look down at verse 14. And he says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The implication is that there's going to be a compensation that's commiserate with the quality of the work that was produced by the laborer. And there are a few different examples of this kind of thinking throughout the New Testament. Now, there are, there's a lot that we could say about this concept, more than I possibly have time to cover this morning. I expect that we'll get into it more next week. But the thing I'd have you note right now is that Jesus is the one who distributes these rewards and he rewards according to a person's performance not according to their results. Over the past several months I've been trying to show you how we as Christians think differently than the world. Uh, particularly in Sunday school we were talking about this point as we discussed worldviews. Well this is a big one. This is a big difference. If you remember we covered this concept known as Pragmatism. Pragmatism is a system that says you do what works. It's erected on the concept that there are no universal norms or values to adhere to. And so if an action simply helps you to achieve a desired outcome, then you do it. Basically, it says the ends justify the means. Christians are not pragmatists. And especially not with regards to ministry. And at least one of the reasons why we're not this way is because of what Paul has been describing over the past couple of chapters. We don't control the results. Do you hear me? No preacher can conjure up faith through his preaching, through sheer eloquence. It doesn't mean that some preachers aren't more fruitful than others. Quite obviously, there are some preachers who are more fruitful than others. But what you have to understand is that the difference in that result doesn't depend on the abilities of the preacher, but on the blessing of God. And that's the same for every sort of Christian, not just preachers. This is important. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul tells us that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. It's very easy to think that by that he's talking about the results of what we've done in our own very worldly way of thinking. And he's going to enter into this judgment according to our results. That's not what he's talking about. So what's he talking about? He tells us right here, verse 8. When he says, each will receive his wages according to his labor. He'll be rewarded for the work he puts in and, verses 14 and 15, the quality of the work. Not the quantity of the result. Not the sheer size of the harvest. 
The faithful farmer can labor hard at sowing seed and watering his crop right, but at the end of the day, who controls the size of the harvest? Who sends the rain? It's God. God causes the growth. So God doesn't reward according to the size of the harvest, but according to the faithfulness of the laborer. So if you find yourself competing with your brothers and sisters, I'd encourage you to remember this thought, that Christ is the one you need to please, not men. Since he distributes the rewards, and he rewards not according to the results of your ministry, but according to your faithfulness. In other words, even once you set your attention on seeking praise from Christ, it's very easy to think that the measure of that praise will be commensurate with the result of your ministry, whatever ministry capacity that may be. And that can get you to seek the praise of men once again, since that becomes the measure of your ministry. Don't do that. That's not how this works. You will be rewarded not according to the results of your ministry to others, but according to your faithfulness. And actually, if I could add just one more encouragement to this thought while we're on the subject of rewards, I would just note that while the Bible does use this athletic language to encourage us to run hard for the reward, there's absolutely nothing in the scriptures to indicate that there's only a limited amount of reward to distribute. You know, like tonight, the, again, the Chiefs and the 49ers are going to play each other and they're going to compete against each other. And that's because only one team gets the title of Super Bowl champion. Only one team gets to lift the Lombardi Trophy. That's not how this kind of reward works. It's more like payment than it is a trophy. And our father, friends, is incredibly rich. Meaning there's enough to go around. So there's really nothing about this concept that should bring you into any sort of direct competition with your brothers and sisters in Christ. If I could put it this way, you're racing the clock, not the runner racing next to you. The only person you're racing against is yourself. Second exhortation. If you have already earned praise for your service, can I encourage you to remember that no matter what man may think or tell you, you are not the one responsible for the fruit of your ministry. Don't be fooled. You may start with the very best of intentions when you start serving Christ, but you will encounter stumbling blocks, and those stumbling blocks can come in the form of encouragements from your brothers and sisters in Christ. It can come from the people in the stands cheering you on. They may be thinking according to worldly standards, like what's happening here in Corinth. They may have good intentions. They may just want to express gratitude for the good fruit that you've nurtured and is springing up in their life. Either way, guys, I can tell you by experience that when this happens, it is very easy to start to think that you're responsible for that. That that growth is a result of your labor and ingenuity. And when that happens, it becomes very easy to get pulled off track and to, to try to conjure up more of that fruit with your skill. You have to avoid that temptation. That way lies the correction of the Lord, who will discipline you in order that he might humble you and teach you once again to place your faith not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. How do you do that? It's by remembering what Paul says here in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. You're nothing more than an empty vessel that God happens to use for his glory. And guys, I tell you, if one vessel becomes broken, he can easily dispose of it and use another. He's got plenty. 
This is a truth they try to pound through our head in seminary all the time. They would tell us, remember, you are not irreplaceable. Every single one of you can be replaced. Guys, if God can speak through Balaam's donkey, he certainly doesn't need any of us. Truth be told, probably most of us are closer to the donkey than we care to admit, right? And yet he uses us anyways. This means that when someone praises you, your attitude should be one of gratitude, not arrogance. You should be grateful that God would ever choose a donkey like you to make his glory known. And I could probably come up with a more colorful way of saying that, but I don't want to offend anyone, so we'll just leave it at that, right? Point being, it's an act of incredible condescension that God would ever let his name pass over your unclean lips, let alone let them bear eternal fruit. We should be humbled by the praise of others, not puffed up by it. Number three, encouragement or exhortation number three and related to this last point, if you feel discouraged because you feel like your gifts are lacking, can I encourage you to remember that the result doesn't depend on you? And God often uses weakness to magnify his glory. It's just like we saw back in chapter 1. God has chosen the low and the despised in the world. Even the things are not. The nothings, right? To bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, does it seem ridiculous that God would speak through a donkey? Of course, and that's the whole point. God speaks through Balaam's donkey in order to demonstrate that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If you feel unequipped to minister, the truth is that you may be in a better position to make an impact than you might think. Because God likes using weak people. He likes to use weak people because when something happens, everyone knows who did it. I mean, no one can say it's because of your giftedness, right? So who's to account for it? Everyone knows. It was God. I can tell you that in my experience, some of the more fruitful pastors I know aren't very good preachers. They're not eloquent or erudite, but they are faithful. And in their weakness, they pray. And in return, God delights to bless their ministry. So don't be discouraged by your apparent weakness. Instead, be er encouraged by it to seek the Lord in prayer and ask that God would give you fruit. Finally, number four. If you're praising others for their service, if you're praising others for their service, could I encourage you to remember that you can do that without tearing other teachers down and that you can even benefit spiritually from men who aren't the most gifted teachers. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen the wisdom that God has to offer isn't like the wisdom of the world. It's a spiritual wisdom. It's received through human instruction and yet it's discerned spiritually. There's this component at play called the Holy Spirit who changes the way this instruction is received. 
And what this means is that even when a human teacher is flawed, and by the way, they're all flawed, right? But even when a human teacher is flawed, even then the Holy Spirit is able to make that instruction fruitful in your life. It's like what Paul says in Romans 8 with respect to prayer. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Basically, even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit does. And he intercedes for us so that our prayers can be fruitful. Well, the same thing happens with teaching. The Spirit is able to take the very flawed expression of spiritual truth that comes from a human mouth and in a sense translate it in the heart of the believer in order to make it fruitful. Every pastor can tell you stories of how they delivered a message that they thought was amazing, which appeared to affect no one, only to then turn around and preach a bomb and have someone come up to them after the service and tell them how helpful that particular sermon was. Understand how that should change your approach as a listener. Listen, it's okay to have teachers that you gravitate to more than others. There's nothing wrong with that. Just don't think that those are the only teachers that can speak into your life and then ignore the rest. You're only shortchanging yourself when you do that. God can use an Apollos in a completely different way than he uses a Paul. So don't get too wrapped up in the way a man expresses something or think that one type of communication is necessarily better than another. Even more than this, if you notice, right, some teachers tend to emphasize some points more than others or they specialize in one area of doctrine over another. So don't limit yourself by sticking to just one teacher. It's sort of like food, right? You, you can't get healthy by eating only bread or only meat or only vegetables. You need a balanced diet. It's the same with teachers. It's not Paul or Apollos, but Paul and Apollos. They both have something to offer. Praise be to God, right, for his faithfulness in building his church. Let's pray.